Please take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Uh, if you perhaps didn't rec- realize, uh, we've just had last week's sermon re-preached to us through the singing. Um, we focused last week on chapter 10. We saw that our God is big, our God is faithful, uh, our God's word is bittersweet, uh, and our God's word must be proclaimed. Uh, and uh, that was the theme that Nick used this morning in terms of the reading and the songs to just remind us uh, of where we've been and uh, where we are headed this morning in Revelation chapter 11. And so let's read together Revelation chapter 11. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter together. Thanks, Dion. So we're in the middle of of an interlude that started back in chapter 10, verse 1. We've had the the six um, trumpets blow, and then this interlude started in chapter 10, and we're halfway through the interlude uh, in chapter 11, and then we're going to get to the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11. So that just puts you in the context. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut, up, to, to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike, every, uh, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire." And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically or spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life From God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in an earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven." The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was 
sorry, who, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, this is God's word, and uh, perhaps as we've just read it, it's appropriate to just pray again as we come to consider this portion. Let's come to the Lord briefly. Father, we do come to a difficult portion of your word this morning, uh, a portion of, wor- of your word which is as inspired and as true as every other portion of Scripture which may at face value appear much more clear and simple to understand. But you have chosen to include this crucial part of your word uh, in the Scriptures for us to read uh, and to learn and to understand what it is that you were wanting your people back then and us today to know and understand about yourself uh, and about this world in which we live and and where it's all headed. And so as we come to this passage now, pray that you would help me uh, as I seek to expound it. Pray that you would help all of us that our hearts would be ready to receive minds that are eager to learn and understand. Uh, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our midst. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we come to what many commentators have said is one of the most difficult passages to understand in the whole book of Revelation. Uh, And they agree that the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult books to understand in all of Scripture. Uh, And so I've been praying for God to help me and you today uh, as we come to His Word together. Uh, We need to start by remembering this morning that chapter 10 verse 1 through to chapter 11 verse 14 is this wonderful interlude of encouragement in the, the third cycle of visions where John has seen these seven angels, or is busy seeing these seven angels blowing their trumpets of God's judgment against all that is sinful and evil on this earth. We've seen in chapter 8 and 9 that just as with the previous seven seals, these seven trumpets reveal God's judgment against the earth, God's judgment against all the wickedness in the earth. Uh, And this is taking place in the entire church age between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so with everything we've been considering about God's judgment against the wicked with the blowing of these six trumpets uh, is something which is, is taking place in our day. God's partial judgment is being seen all around us in his curse against the created order as a result of Adam's sin, creation is cursed, it's groaning, it's it's buckling under the pressure and the weight of sin. We've seen God's partial judgment against the wicked of this earth. The wages of sin is death, and the fact that even the righteous die is the evidence of this judgment of God against sin on the earth. But particularly, we see that dictators and and those who shake their fists at God, they, they do not live forever. They are are brought to death, sometimes uh, untimely deaths from this world's perspective. 
But thankfully, as we've seen in the previous cycle of visions, this age between the, the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ is not only characterized, about, uh, characterized by judgment. I think as I talk to people about Revelation, the, the overwhelming sense that you get as you read the book of Revelation is it's, it's a book all about judgment. Well, praise God for these interludes, uh, these interludes of encouragement, which also show us uh, that God is sovereignly reigning over all things. He's graciously ruling uh, over all things for the salvation of and the benefit of His church. So we saw something of this back in chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 was the, the interlude of the 144,000 being sealed, that no harm would come upon us as the people of God. We saw this again much more clearly last week, I hope, uh, as we were given this vision, this amazing vision of, of this uh, mighty angel that came out of heaven, this vision of Jesus Christ towering over the earth sovereignly reigning over all creation and accomplishing his purposes, as we saw last week, both of redemption and uh, his judgment of the wicked. And so now John's vision continues to encourage God's people in this world. We, we live in this broken world. We live in a world that is under the, the heavy hand of God's judgment because of sin. And we live like wheat amongst the tares, the parables tell us, uh, until the final judgment comes. We, we live together, believers and unbelievers in this world. And we are not only protected by God, that's become clear already with the sealing of the 144,000, but today I want us to see that we are also commissioned by God. We are commissioned to be His faithful witnesses among the unbelieving peoples and nations of this world. Now, I want to just mention at the beginning of this chapter today that the, the symbolism and the imagery that we have in chapter 11 is some of the most difficult in all of Revelation. And so we need to be reminded again that what we have before us in these pages is symbolical. It is a vision of dramatic, apocalyptic pictures and the colors John uses, they are bright, they bold, and what we'll see today is that there are multiple layers uh, of, of images, and they all overlap. That's what makes today's passage so confusing. The images all overlap, and yet they are pointing to the same spiritual truth. And so as I've tried to do each week, so far, we, we need to ground our understanding of the spiritual truths of this chapter in the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We do not look outside of Scripture to try and understand what these symbols mean. I was greatly helped by Sinclair Ferguson uh, this week who explained the book of Revelation like a grand tapestry a tapestry of God's purposes in this world, where each of the strands of wool, if you've ever watched someone do a tapestry, they've got a whole little box with all the little colors of wool, and they take the right color of wool, they put it into a needle, and then they thread it through the tapestry. And, and as the tapestry is being um, woven together, you can't really understand what's going on until all the colors come together, and you stand back and you see an amazing picture. 
And where I was so helped by Sinclair this week is, is he says that Revelation is like a tapestry where each of the strands of brightly colored wool that are woven together into this tapestry are strands that have been pulled from various threads of God's revelation in the Old and the New Testament. Now this is true for all of Revelation, but it's especially true today in chapter 11. As we are going to see, for example, the strand of wool pulled from Zechariah's vision of the measuring of the temple back in chapter, Zechariah chapter 2 verse 1 to 4. Or Ezekiel's measuring of the temple in Ezekiel chapter 40. We also see a strand of wool pulled from the vision of the two olive trees and the, and the lampstand taken from Zechariah chapter 4. There's a strand of wool pulled from the vision of Elijah calling down fire from heaven in 2 Kings chapter 1, or perhaps of Jeremiah's preaching in Jeremiah chapter 5 as his preaching consumed the people of God, like Kindle. The tapestry of this vision also includes the strand of wool pulled from Elijah's prayer to, for, for God to shut the heavens uh, so that there would be no rain for three and a half years in 1 Kings 17. And then there's the strand of wool pulled from Moses as he called down the plagues of God in Egypt on, on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt because of their hardness of heart in Exodus chapter 7 to 10. Then as we move to the New Testament, we also see strands of wool being pulled from Jesus and the apostles teaching about the physical temple, that the physical temple has been replaced by the spiritual temple, which is the people of God. We see this in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 2. We see the strand of wool regarding spiritual warfare in the New Testament, which Paul speaks about as, the, as a battle rages between the people of God and the servants of Satan in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 12. And so as we come to Revelation 11, we see many brightly colored strands of spiritual truth that are revealed to us throughout Scripture, that are being woven together in this chapter into a most incredible vision, helping us to see with, with an amazing clarity the beauty of the big picture, uh, which the individual strands were never able to teach us on their own. And so let's jump into the text, and, and let me start by, by saying that one of the real dangers that we face today, right here today in this congregation, but also generally speaking in our South African context, is the danger that we think that we are part of the people of God when in reality we may not be. And so as we've been working our way through Revelation, we've been reading about the judgment of God against the wicked again and again and again, and we leave on a Sunday thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm a member of Honey Ridge Baptist Church. And then when we read about the sealing and the protection of the church, we assume that's us, we're safe, when perhaps the true spiritual condition of our hearts might be very different. And so John's vision starts today with a very important question. And here it is. Are you in or are you out? 
Are you in or are you out? Chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 continues in this interlude with John being drawn right into the vision to participate in what is being shown to him by God. Let's see that in verse 1. Then I was given, this is John, so he's in this vision, he's seeing all these things. He's now drawn in, he's given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now there is a lot going on uh, in this vision, just even in these two verses, we have a measuring staff, we have a temple, an altar, worshipers, there's an inside part and there's an outside court, there's the trampling of the nations, and the danger is that we forget that this is a vision. This is a symbolic picture, and we start thinking in terms of literal objects instead of thinking in terms of spiritual truths. So what is this all about? What does the measuring of the temple signify? And, and how does it contrast with measuring or not measuring the court outside? Well, it's clear from both Ezekiel chapter 40 and Zechariah chapter 2. Those are two important uh, references or strands that are being pulled into this vision. That the measuring of the temple signifies pretty much the same thing that it would today uh, if you contracted a land surveyor to come and measure the boundaries of your property. The title deed to your home is a legal document with very specific detailed measurements on it. It defines the boundary of, of what is in and what is out. And so if you have a, a dispute with your neighbor, a, a squabble over who owns the big tree in the bottom corner of the yard, what settles the matter finally and fully is the measurements on the title deed. And so John is told here to measure the temple of God and all that is inside it. We give reference to the altar uh, and then to those who worship there, those who are inside the temple. But he is specifically told not to measure the court outside the temple. He must leave that alone because it has been handed over to the nations to be trampled. And so what we firstly see here is God's measuring of those who belong to him. In other words, who is the true church of Jesus Christ? And he does this by telling John to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. John's job in verse 1 and 2 is to determine who's in and, and who is out. And God is clear. The boundary line on the title deed is the wall between the inside of the temple and the outside of the temple, between the holy place and between the, the court of the Gentiles, which was outside. Now, we don't have time today to explore the whole biblical theology, uh, the theme of temple throughout Scripture, but it's a, a fascinating study that runs from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. 
And for anyone who'd like to explore that in more detail, uh, you cannot do better than the book called The Temple and the Church's Mission uh, by Greg Beale and Don Carson. But in essence, what you need to know this morning is that the concept of the temple was always meant to be understood as a spiritual symbol. It was a type, we say, or a, a shadow for a far greater spiritual reality, which is the dwelling place of God among his people. And so, when Jesus comes uh, in the New Testament, he makes it clear that a dramatic change has happened. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacled. He, he templed amongst us. God came and dwelt among his people. And so the physical temple, when Jesus arrived, had outlived its purpose. God now indwells his people by his Holy Spirit. Collectively, the people of God uh, in the church are referred to in the New Testament as the living temple of God. And so to drive the point home most definitively, Jesus prophesies the final and the complete destruction of the earthly temple. Not one stone will be left on top of another, says Jesus, and this was accomplished in A.D. 70. So with the book of Revelation being written around A.D. 95, the temple in Jerusalem is long gone the New Testament teaching that the church is the, the true spiritual temple of God. That teaching was now thoroughly established in John's mind and in the mind of his readers. And so John's vision in these verses is clearly referring to a measuring of or a determining the boundaries of the church, the true people of God who live in his presence and worship him in spirit and in truth. What did Jesus say to that Samaritan woman? The day is coming when you no longer will go to Jerusalem or to this mountain to worship God. Why? Because those things, those physical shadows will be gone because God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, Just as we saw back in the interlude we had in chapter 7 that the true church, the true people of God was pictured using the language of the Old Testament people of Israel. We saw that. Now we see that in this next interlude, the true church of God is being described in the pictures of the Old Testament temple. But the spiritual meaning behind the symbol is clearly understood from the teaching of the New Testament. So if the measuring of the temple then is a determination of who is in, who belongs to, to Christ, who belongs to the church, then it's clear that those who are not measured are out. But what is very interesting is that John is not told that those who are outside the temple precinct, they're the ones who are out. Or he's not told, John, go and measure those who are outside the city walls of Jerusalem. They are out. No, the line is drawn much closer than we may be comfortable with. God says that he must measure those who are in versus those who are in the outside court of the temple. And so this is a real challenge today to those who are close to the things of God. You come to church regularly, 
nominal Christians. You, you hang around the church. You, you're not a Muslim. You're not a Jew. You're not an atheist. You were born Christian, uh, whatever that means. And, and you participate in the, the various ministries perhaps of the church you help with soup kitchens and you you sew beanies and you bring blankets and beans and bread and you do all those kinds of things you may even have have gone through the motions of baptism you may regularly go through the motions of the lord's supper you may even have gone as far as to become a member of honey rich whoa And yet God's word reveals to you today that you're out. You're out, why? Because you're not found inside the holy place. Now how do you know if you are in or out? I think the clue is given in the reference in verse 1 and 2 to the altar and those who worship there. Most likely the reference to the altar here is the altar of incense. That one was inside the holy place. And it refers, as we've seen previously, to the prayers of the saints that ascend to God. And then there's a reference to the worshipers who are there. Both these two together speak very clearly of those who are born again. Those who've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, as we saw in chapter 7. Those who have the, the name of God on their foreheads, whose lives are described as people who pray and worship God. What a, what a simple test to true Christianity. Do you pray and do you worship God? I'm not talking about shooting up a quick prayer before, gray, uh, before lunch or a quick prayer when a taxi pulls in front of you. I'm talking about someone who talks to God, whose prayers rise into the presence of God. Are you someone who prays? And are you a worshiper of God? You see, those inside this spiritual temple, as the New Testament describes, are those who've who've put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Can I show you this in some of the New Testament verses? 1 Peter 2 verse 4, as you come to him, this is a reference to coming to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. He was a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. As you come to him, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Where did the priest function? Inside the temple to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple is us if we've come to Christ. Testing, testing, okay, while we're doing some battery maintenance here, uh, let's move on to, to 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple or God's temple and that his spirit dwells in you? Yes, mine. Here we go. So we see both collectively we are the temple of God and individually we are the temple of God. 
And then look at chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 to 18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols, with those outside? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. You see the concept of temple? Temple means God dwells with his people. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is both a a wonderful encouragement to us as believers today, but for some of you it may be a very serious warning. Are you in or are you out? You see, hanging around the things of God for for much of your life may have lulled you into a false sense of security, thinking that that you are part of the people of God, when in reality, as, as John takes the measuring rod and he measures the boundaries of the temple and those who worship there, he finds that you are indeed out. And if you are out You've been given over to the nations. You are part of that group of unbelievers on whom the seven trumpets of God's judgment are blowing. Six have have sounded already, and you maybe have have largely escaped the, the judgments of God in your life so far. But the seventh trumpet is about to blow, and when it does, you will be eternally condemned. But for those who are inside... For those who've repented of their sin, who've who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we've been sealed. We are safe. We are protected. The judgments may come and the persecutions may arise, but we belong to God. The title deed of salvation includes you. You're internally safe if you're in Christ. We'll see this in more detail a little bit later, but we see in verse 2 that the nations, those who do not believe in Jesus, now that now includes the nominal Christians. You see, in God's economy, there's not true Christians and nominal Christians that are both saved. You're either a true Christian and saved, or you're outside. You belong to the nations. You profess to be a believer, but you're not. It's the unbelievers and the nominal Christians who will trample the holy city for 42 months. Some of my greatest personal opposition and persecution in my life, and it hasn't been much, has come mostly from professing Christians, not from the unbelieving world, from those who are not saved but profess to be saved. Here we see the the layering of images in this vision. Because those that John has just uh, measured inside the temple are now referred to in verse 2 as the holy city. In other words, these are the people of God who've been set apart for God. We will see soon that we are a holy city. But for now it's clear we live as, as God's holy city amongst a pagan, unbelieving world. And yes, The worldly believers will trample us. Unbelievers will trample us. They'll oppose us. They'll persecute us. And we are told that that'll happen for 42 months. I'll explain the numbers in a a little bit later. For now, we need to know that this is just a, a, a precisely determined time period by God. And yet, despite all this trouble and all this persecution and all this trampling, which the nations will will take out on us throughout the church age, if you're in the temple. You're secure as the people of God. 
Now the rest of chapter 11 today is for those who are in. The rest of this chapter is not for those who are out. And so if you are in, if you are part of Christ today, if you are a true Christian, what does it look like to be this holy city in the midst of an unbelieving world? And so in the second place, Jesus wants us to see that you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in verses three to six. Let's just read verse three. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. So the picture has changed. The picture in verse three changes from what was a temple of God to now two witnesses. And I would propose that the, the symbolic truth to which both pictures points is exactly the same. Remember, these are spiritual pictures. These are not literal descriptions. And so in verse one and two, the people of God are described in terms of the security and the protection of God's temple. And then we are called the holy city towards the end of verse two. And now in verse three, the same group of people are being described in terms of their purpose and their function in this world between the first and the second coming of Jesus. You see, what one picture is good for is not necessarily good for the next. So the temple symbol was great at conveying God's presence with his people. It was great at conveying this idea of worship and, and intimacy with God. But now John's next picture reveals something very different. It reveals to us our purpose. Our purpose in this world is that we are witnesses to a pagan world. And so John refers in verses three to six to four pairs. Uh, let me just bring them up for you there. There are two witnesses, and you can jot down those scripture references. He makes reference to two olive trees, to two lampstands, and to two prophets. And again, each of these symbols is a, is a bright strand of wool that has been drawn out of the Old Testament and then woven into this beautiful picture to describe the function of the church in this world. Now, we unfortunately don't have time today to explore all these individual strands, and perhaps you want to encourage your, your small group leader uh, this week to perhaps take a pause and maybe dig into to some of these strands in a little bit more detail. But what you will see is, is that two witnesses, let's just start there with two witnesses, that's a clearly established Old Testament principle for determining the truth. If you wanted to know if something was absolutely true, you needed two witnesses. And so this speaks of our responsibility as the church to represent the truth of God to the world. And we saw last week that truth includes both, this, both the, the sweet good news of salvation as well as the bitter bad news of judgment. We are told to be a witness to the truth uh, of God to the world. But then the picture moves on to two olive trees and to two lampstands. And that comes to us straight from Zechariah chapter 4. So please turn in your Bibles uh, to Zechariah chapter 4. And I want you to just see the, the thread uh, that John is weaving into this um, vision here in Revelation chapter 11. So Zechariah chapter 4 verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awoken out of his sleep. And he said to me, 
What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of gold with a bowl on top of it, and it has seven lamps on top of it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and one of the, on the left of the bowl. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel said, well, can't you see? It's a literal lampstand and it's literal olive trees. No, it's not what he said. He said, the angel talked with me and answered and said, don't you know what these are? Implying you should understand what you are seeing. And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but, my, but, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So forget load shedding and generators and solar power inverters. Here we have a wonderful picture of the perpetual light of God's word shining brightly in a world that is powered by God's Holy Spirit. You see, lamps in the Bible times needed oil. And so a large lamp with a big bowl and then seven branches, that would have needed lots of oil to burn continuously. And so Zechariah sees God's divine solution. If you look down at verse 11 to 14, we have a wonderful picture of two olive trees connected to the lamp with two golden pipes. And the oil of the olive tree flows perpetually through these pipes into the lamp so that it can shine forever. And then God reveals that Zerubbabel, his king, and Joshua, his high priest, are his two anointed witnesses who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to represent the Lord of hosts to Israel. So when we come now to the New Testament, so that's the Old Testament background to this vision. When we come then to the New Testament, we see that the church is called a temple of the living God, but it's also called a lampstand. We've seen that in Revelation chapter 1. The church is the lampstand. And we are also told in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, and Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, it's a verse that Nick read this morning, that we are a royal priesthood. Royal, kingly, Zerubbabel, priesthood, Joshua. Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 5 says that we are a kingdom, we royalty of priests to God. We are called what, what King Zerubbabel was and what priest Joshua was to the people of their day, we are being called to be to the world in our day. We are God's two witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now watch how amazingly God's word ties this all together in the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. Let me just bring that up for you. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 to 8. So when they'd come together, this is the disciples, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is just before Jesus ascended. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But listen here, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
Isn't it amazing how all of these threads of Scripture are woven together into this tapestry of Revelation 11? Think back to what Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And now we read in Revelation 11 verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. That's a reference to the message of judgment, the bitterness of God's word that we saw last week. These are the two olive trees. The two witnesses are the two olive trees, and they are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And so John then continues to describe these two witnesses, olive trees, lampstands, in terms of their function which is in terms of two very prominent Old Testament prophets, namely that of Elijah and Moses. Both Elijah and Moses brought a message of judgment and woe against the people of God who opposed his word. Moses, we know, called down the plagues of God on Pharaoh. Elijah shut up the heavens for three and a half years on all those who rejected the word of God. And so if we understand then spiritually the reality of these two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, the two prophets, it's us, it's the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We proclaim his prophetic message to the world. Then we understand, verse two, why the nations will oppose us and they will trample on us for 42 months. But in this gospel age, We need to take great encouragement that as God's two witnesses, as his light in this world, those who oppose our message of God's truth, they will be judged. And we see that judging in these verses symbolically expressed here through fire and famine and plague. Listen to how God expressed the judgment of the preaching of his word to those who reject it in Jeremiah chapter 4. He has another thread that's being drawn in. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth. You see, it's God's word coming out of our mouths, a what? A fire. And the people would, and the fire will consume them. It's exactly the same picture in Revelation 11. As we proclaim the word of God, his word becomes fire, which judges and burns up those who reject the God of the word. Now before we move on, let me just say a few words about the numbers referred to here. Um, We see in verse two that we are told that the nations will trample on the people of God for 42 months. And then in verse three, we told that this commission to go and witness and prophesy will last for 1,260 days. And I want to just jump you ahead to next week in chapter 12, verse 14. We're going to see that the church of God is sent into the wilderness and is nourished for time, times, and half a time. Now, what I'm wanting to say to you this morning is that all three of these numbers are exactly the same. If you do the maths, 1,260 days is exactly equal to 42 months which is exactly equal to three and a half years. Uh, One time, times, so you've got one time, times, and half a time, three and a half, 
Okay, so the three and a half and the 42 and the 1,260, they're all the same period. And once again, as with the rest of Revelation, these are, are not a literal period of three and a half years, but a reference to the entire church age, the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. So why then does John use different descriptions? Well, we can't be sure, but it seems simply to be linked to the event being described. So in verse 2, the period of the nations trampling the church is termed in terms of 42 months. And this is normal to describe a city, the holy city that's under siege. The period of tribulation in the wilderness we'll get to next week is described as three and a half years of famine. Famines normally were described in terms of years. But notice that the description of the witnesses prophesying is termed in terms of 1,260 days. And I think that's significant in that it refers to the fact that our witnessing is something that happens day by day in this entire church age. But I don't think we meant to make too much uh, of the differences. Rather, we should see that this period of, of worldly trampling and daily witnessing and spiritual protection in the wilderness is all describing the same fixed period. It's determined by God in which the church is oppressed and opposed, but we're not crushed. We are protected. We are secure. And God's word will defend itself. Our job is to be faithful in proclaiming it. He will judge those who oppose it. And so this leads us on to the third place, and I'm almost done, uh, to verse 7 to 14, which leads us to this portion which shows that the church is conquered, yet conquering. This, this next section is both very disturbing and yet wonderfully encouraging. Uh, we see in verse 7 that this season of witnessing for Christ, the gospel age, it has a purpose and it has a fixed time allocated to it. We don't just live and exist on this world until maybe one day Jesus comes. No, our time on this earth has a very specific duration and purpose. Listen to Jesus' own description of this in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus is talking about the end times. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is the 42 months of the trampling of the nations. Then Jesus goes on and says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. This is a reference to those outside of the temple. This is the outside courts, people who appear Christians but are not. Jesus goes on. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a reference to the security of the true saints in the temple. And then verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is a reference to the 1,260 days of faithful witnessing of God's people. So once the church has finished its witnessing about Jesus to all the world, then the end will come, and Revelation tells us all about that. 
John sees that a beast will rise from the abyss. We'll get more into the beast uh, in future weeks, so don't worry about that for this week. And he will make war against the church, and he will conquer and kill them. Did you see that? The church will be killed. And the corpse of the church will lie in the streets of the great city, which is spiritually or symbolically referred to as Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified. Here we see that the the great city is a reference to the world. We're going to come across that later on uh, in Revelation much more. But this great city of the world is contrasted with the holy city in verse 2, which is the church. The holy city is in the midst of the great city. The great city of the unbelieving world is being described here by three names as Sodom. That's a reference to all the sexual abominations and lusts of the flesh, Sodom. It's also referred to as Egypt, a reference to the power of military might and oppression and slavery. And it's referred to as Jerusalem, the place of false religion and piety and moralism, which in the end crucified Jesus. We are told in verse 9 and 10 that the world will rejoice over the death of the church. They will gaze at her corpse in the streets. Shocking. They will celebrate so that they send gifts to each other. They're going to have like a a birthday gift party to celebrate the death of the church. Why? Look at verse 10b. Because the witnessing of the church had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. What a disturbing image of the fate of the church, especially as we think to to the time before Jesus returns. But I also think, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation so far, that this is a a shadowy reference to, to what takes place throughout the church age. At various times and at various places throughout church history, the church has been conquered. It's been killed. And as we read church history, in those spiritually dark times and places, the world has gloated over the death of the church. It celebrates, as it is doing today, the silencing of Christians in our world. It hates us because our message of God's holiness and his righteous demands torments them. But please see something very important The period of the death of the church is only three and a half days. So after three and a half years was just a symbolically long period referring to the first and the second comings. Then in contrast, the three and a half days is meant to be understood as short. It's brief. It's a a brief period of being conquered. It's a brief period for the world to gloat over the death of the church. Because look at verse 11. Something amazing happens. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. The death of the church is a short-lived victory. As Satan gloated over the corpse of Jesus for one short weekend, And then Jesus rose triumphant from the grave here to the gloating, the the victory party of the world over the death of the church will be short-lived 
As the angel announced last week, there would be no more delay. The mystery of God is about to be fulfilled. So drawing another strand from the Old Testament, a strand of wool from Ezekiel chapter 37, that valley, uh, the vision of the valley of dry bones, we here see the breath of God coming upon the corpse of the church. Those who've been killed, and as God's breath enters them, they stand on their feet, they hear the voice of Jesus, and they rise to glory in the clouds. If you want to call this the rapture, that's fine with me. Just please don't call it a secret rapture. There is nothing secret about this. The whole world sees the final resurrection and glorification of the church, and the world is overcome with great fear at the coming of Jesus. In other words, the church militant, the church that has been fighting here on earth, is conquered at the very end. Yes, for three and a half short days, for a brief moment in history, but then the church victorious rises to conquer forever as we meet the Lord in the air. This great moment for the church is also accompanied by signs of of the imminent final judgment. There's a great earthquake, a large number of people are killed, the rest are terrified as they anticipate the seventh trumpet. So we've run out of time, and uh, let me just close briefly with the final section by just reading those verses to you now in the light of what we've understood. Because now the seventh trumpet sounds, and what happens in these verses is not difficult, it's not hard to understand, it's in a sense a similar repeat to what we saw at the end of the second cycle of visions. Let's just read verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Yes, look at that. The nations raged. They trampled your people for 42 months. But when the seventh trumpet sounded, your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged for the rewarding your servants and the prophets and the saints who fear your name, both great and small, and the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven, again, the temple was opened, the ark was seen in the temple, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. We started the chapter with a temple of God on earth, and we end with a temple of God in heaven. As you consider this vision today, are you in or are you out? We started this chapter with the nations trampling the church, and we end this vision with God trampling the nations. Are you safe on the inside, or are you terrified on the outside? I want you to see from this last section that the lamb wins. The lamb wins, the lamb conquers, and so do those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you in or are you out today? Please don't leave here today if you're out. Come and speak to me. Come and speak to any one of us as elders. Speak to any Christian here today about how to be in for sure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, we thank you 
for your grace revealed to us in the pages of Scripture to give us a glimpse of, of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will still do. Lord, those of us who are in today are only in because of Jesus, because the Lamb who was slain rose again and conquered. Those who are out are out because they refuse to bow the knee to the Lamb who wins. Won't you, by your Holy Spirit, reveal both comfort and warning to us as your people here today, for we pray this in Jesus' name.